0: Imagine you're able to create a synthetic version of yourself, like a digital version that kind of looks like you, but it's, you know, has voice like you. And you could actually sell a subscription service to that. That's the kind of business opportunities we're heading into. Welcome to episode 47 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Raitzer, back with my co-host, Mike Caput from his trip to Punta Cana. What's up, Mike? was Punta Cana? We haven't even had a chance to talk since you got back.
1: It was awesome. I mean, obviously, we ran into a few little internet issues, but, you know, the beach and the sunshine <laughs> made up for it.
0: Well, yeah, it was uh, it was weird doing it solo. I think I got a little <laughs> slap happy at the end, like talking to myself for 50 minutes, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's good to have you back. It's good
1: to be back. <laughs>
0: I'm not winging this on my own. All right, today's episode is jam packed, so we're gonna we're gonna get through this. We have a we have a deadline. We have fifty five minutes max. We're gonna move fast. Uh, there's a lot of rapid fire items, and I feel like we could spend the whole show just talking about the Google I/O conference, <laughs> but we won't. um So this show is brought to you by the Marketing AI Conference, which is again is returning to Cleveland, July twenty sixth to the twenty eighth. We are. Um, trending pretty high on the, on the ticket sales again our our goal was originally 400 we're we're blowing past that so um yeah i mean it's looking like you know maybe 600 plus uh, for this event so we would love to have you there the lineup looks incredible we're still adding to it still going to announce some keynotes over the next 30 days or so but check that out it is uh, macon just m-a-i-c-o-n dot a-i Uh, We would love to see you there. Again, it's July 26th to the 28th. So if you are new to the show, three main topics. Mike and I go through Zoom chat all week back and forth and usually like 30, 40, 50 items in there. (laughs) Mike then spends his Sunday night curating those and uh, turns it into the main three topics. And then everything else gets dropped into rapid fire. Like I said, today is a jam-packed episode. So we will get right into it with our first topic.
1: All right, so a huge topic this week, Google just announced some major AI updates, and this includes an AI makeover of search that everybody is talking about. So Google had its IO developers conference and announced a slew of updates related to AI across different products and developments that it has made on its own models. So some of the most important updates, and there are quite a few of them, so definitely check out the show notes to go through the whole list. But the ones that jumped out as really important include they announced a new next generation large language model called PALM-2, and they say that PALM-2 excels at advanced reasoning tasks including code and math, classification and question answering, translation, and multilingual proficiency, and it's better than our previous state-of-the-art large language models. Google also announced an AI makeover of search through what they're calling their search generative experience. So this will essentially deliver conversational results, like a chat GPT, right in Google's core search engine. And this is going to be available to users who sign up to Google's Search Labs sandbox. Again, that link is in the show notes. Some other really notable updates, there are new AI writing tools for Gmail where it will write emails for you. Uh, Google has removed the waitlist for BARD. It's kind of experimental conversational AI engine. And you will now have the ability to use AI to generate full documents, slides, and fill in spreadsheets automatically across tools like Docs, Slides, and Sheets. So this was such a huge announcement, Paul. I mean, there's been a ton of speculation that Google has fallen behind lately in the AI race with companies like Microsoft, OpenAI, et cetera. But these announcements certainly seem quite the opposite of that. Not only is Google back in the game, but they appear to be in quite a strong position here. Can you unpack the significance of the latest round of these announcements from Google?
0: Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about this and we've talked about this on the show uh, quite a number of times that, listen, there probably isn't a more advanced organization in the world from a perspective of AI than Google. And that is pretty widely known, I would say. I mean, obviously there's major players like Meta and it is still not talked about enough with what they're doing and Jan LeCun and that team. Um, Microsoft's been doing this stuff for 20 years. Amazon's been a major player, Baidu, NVIDIA. Like th- there's just, there's a lot of major players and obviously OpenAI gets a ton of press. Um, what what sort of jumped out to me on this event was... um there seems to now be a willingness on Google's part to do things they weren't willing to do before. So they have obviously a massive um, uh, lead in, in ad, uh, the ad, digital ads and search in particular, and there's been no motivation on their part to disrupt that. Um, so then when Microsoft and OpenAI show up and start kind of rattling the cage, Google has to sort of look themselves in the mirror and say are we willing to now do things we wouldn't have done before like cannibalize their own business and what we've been waiting on is would they be willing to do that and i think that's been the big question in everyone's minds certainly in investors minds and so i started thinking last week and i think i might have got asked about this on a different podcast and, um, and and so i just i made a quick list of like the things that Google has going in its favor that this these announcements sort of start leading into, and that I'd be a little worried about if I was the competition. So first, they have the people; they have over two thousand AI ML employees. Um, now they have lost a lot of top talent. People like Aiden Gomez went on to found Cohere, and I think it was was it Noam Brown that went on to find character.ai Like some of the people who were. Core to the innovation in the last like five, six years in in generative AI and in language models in Google have left to do their own thing. Um, And in part, it seems like some of those top people left because they couldn't commercialize their own technology. So, certainly, there's an entrepreneurial spirit. People are going to leave and go build their own thing. That's going to happen all the time. But you just don't hear about that at like Apple. Like, you you don't hear about high profile people leaving Apple as much. So, it seemed like it was a little bit more of an issue here. but because they, again, they weren't really willing to commercialize what they had, they have these two major research labs, which are now a single AI research lab, and they're working on all this stuff. And so imagine you're one of the top AI researchers in the world, and you're inventing the transformer architecture, and you're doing all these things. And it's like, they never see the light of day. I would imagine that becomes a bit demoralizing or challenging. And so to work in a company where the things you build can actually you know see the, the consumer end um, is probably a little bit more interesting. I would guess again. I'm not a researcher. I'm just sort of theorizing here, and so I think if they're willing to now actually start putting these innovations out into the market, maybe you slow down that that talent leak, and you can actually really recruit um, the the best people in the world. So they have people. They have 20 plus years of AI research. OpenAI was created in 2016, so I mean it's newer. Um, they have the data centers and the compute power, which Almost no one has. Um, OpenAI relies on Microsoft for it. It's why they sold a third of the company for $10 billion. They had to have access to compute power. So Google has that. Um, They have their own chips that were purpose-built for AI, for machine learning called TPUs, Tensor Processing Units. So the the industry was powered by GPUs, which are made by NVIDIA. Um, Google built their own TPUs for more advanced and kind of customized versions of AI. So they have their own chips. They have Google DeepMind and Demis Asabas, who we've talked about on the show before. So they have, again, a decade plus of advanced research into some of the, the frontiers of where AI is going. They have $115 billion in cash, according to their most recent earnings call. They have 93% market share of the search market, and they have over 6 million Google workspace business customers, which is more than 50% of the office suite market. So if you stack all this up and they actually have AI as advanced or better than open AI, open AI, doesn't have any of that stuff. Microsoft doesn't have any of that stuff. So I just look at it and say, if, if the end game here is actually artificial general intelligence, which, which I believe it to be, both from having conversations from people at Google who are working on AI and from everything we hear in the industry is the belief that this is where we're trying to go. It's what Demis Asavas and DeepMind were, you know, what he created it for him and Shane Legg and their, their co founders is to achieve AGI. Well, AGI is trillions in market cap. So if you can build a machine that's super intelligent or superhuman at multiple capabilities, at many tasks, the value you can unlock is, is massive. And so if they think that, there is a viable path to AGI and that they're looking at potentially trillions in market cap, then they may be willing to do things to their ad business and their search business that we're not thinking about, or that the average analyst would look at them and say, Oh, there's no way they'd cannibalize their ad business. Well, maybe they would <laughs> if if the alternative is a trillion dollar market. So I don't know. I just I I think that um they they may be willing to do some things here that most people don't think they're going to be willing to do and i think that you know it's kind of just like that you poke the bear and the bear is like ready to go now and i don't know like i i'm very bullish on google i think that the biggest roadblock honestly may be regulatory Mm -hmm. like that if they do start heading down this path um you know, I think part of their concerns was that they were going, if they release things that don't work as well, or that do harm, mm-hmm. that they were worried that the regulators is going to come after them. And I don't know if maybe they think that because everybody's doing it now, there's more cover for them and they're not going to get, you know, I- isolated in that. But I do see the regulator being, um, being a potential issue, but overall, um, I don't know, I, a couple of quick thoughts. So that's like kind of my macro level thoughts. My other thought is looking at the search, massively disruptive. I've talked with a number of people in the last week, you know, more expert on, on search than I am. And it seems pretty universal if no one has a clue what this is going to do, but it sure seems like it's going to be a massive disruption to SEO and content publishing for brands. And, you know, cause the big question basically becomes, well, if I get the answer right there, what do I need to go to the publisher for? Mm-hmm. And if I, over time don't need to go to the publisher as much, then what is the motivation of the publisher to publish anything? Um, so I did I give you a quick example. I ran I used Bard. So the BARD, the Palm2 you mentioned, the new language model is powering BARD now. And anybody can go get it. It's just what Bard.google.com. So you said there's no wait list, nothing. You can turn it on. Now I will say you can turn it on for your personal Gmail, but if you're a Google workspace business, your administrator actually has to go in and turn on there's an early access for apps. You have to go in and turn that on and then give some data permissions. So if you have a corporate account that's using Google Workspace, or if you're the administrator of one of those accounts, you have to go in and make it an adjustment. I'll put in the show notes a link for how to do that. Um, but anyway, so once you go in and, and turn it on, you can actually start to experiment with Bard. And so I did one because it is connected to the internet, unlike OpenAI's ChatGPT out of the box. So I did one that asked it about um, our conference. So I said, like, you know, tell me about the marketing ad conference, and it, it did it, It you know, had the right dates, right location, right. Everything. Um, I did ask it one where and it was pretty much everything I needed I could still go to the event site, but it didn't list it. And then I asked it one where I wasn't sh- I was like, okay, let me see if it actually cites things. And so I asked that what is the law of uneven AI distribution? Now, if anybody listens to the show, they've heard us talk about this. I wrote it in probably March. So it's, it's fresh. It's original. Like I knew there was nowhere else on the internet that would have talked about it yet. So I put it in and it did like a 400 word summary of the law of uneven distribution that I wouldn't have needed to go anywhere else. Like it was everything I needed, but it did actually have citations at the bottom that went back to our blog. So I don't know. I mean, I think that it's going to change dramatically. Um, Bard was interesting, not, not nearly as creative as GPT-4. So I haven't pushed this thing through the limits like you know the, the, the Twitter thread people who you know, jumped on this thing and, and ran 50 use cases through it, but I ran like five or six use cases through Bard, and um, yeah, it's nowhere near as creative. I gave it the same out of office prompt that I've talked about. I gave GPT-4, and it it was like really dry. And I said, "Can you make this more humorous?" And it gave me another output. I was like, "That's not funny." Like, try, can you can you make this funny? And it's like, I'm just a language model. Funny is subjective. And I'm like, no, it's it's actually not very creative or funny. Um, so, yeah. And, but then I gave it, like, you know, my, my family's going on a trip to Rimini, Italy, uh, create a recommended destination. And it, it did with a day to day itinerary. Like it was, mm. it was really good. I asked it to summarize uh, mentions of AI during the most recent HubSpot earnings reports. And it gave me a summary from, I don't know, it was like February. And I was like, isn't there a more recent one? And it came back and said, oh, yes, there's a more recent one from May. <laughs> and then it gave it to me. And, um, and then I kind of, I actually asked it, like, what is, this one was fascinating. Um, it was like, what is the, what advantage does Google have over Microsoft and open AI in, you know, the race for building generative AI technologies? And it, it gave a really good analysis that was actually kind of on point. Um, and then I kind of kept drilling it. So I don't know, I I guess overall massive impact on search. Um, once the stuff gets infused into Google Workspace, so it's in Sheets and Docs and Slides, it's going to be really interesting. I think it's going to be not as impressive as the demos. I, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a little bit um, of a learning curve, but I do think turning this stuff loose on the world when knowledge workers have no real training for it and everybody in the organization all of a sudden has these tools, it's going to be game changing and we're not ready for it. <laughs> We're yes. we're getting close to ready, but as a society, <laughs> we're not ready
1: for it. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's that's an awesome analysis. That's really helpful to kind of cut through all the information and noise out there about this.
0: But there was like 25 products announced. Yes. So again, Mike and I are just hitting the basics, um, what we see as the high level. But yeah, I mean, go go read the stuff. Go look at some of the deeper analysis of some of the specific tools
1: because it was a lot to process. So next up, we have an interesting announcement from Anthropic, which is a major AI player and creator of the AI assistant model, Claude. They just published um, kind of an approach to AI safety that could be a really interesting and significant um, approach moving forward to get safer, better AI output. So in a blog post, they outlined an approach that they're using called constitutional AI. What this means is they give their large language model explicit values determined by a constitution rather than values determined implicitly via large-scale human feedback. So basically, you know, this is designed to address the historical limitation in large language models where it kind of learns what's quote-unquote right or wrong by what humans determine and that traditionally determines what we might call the values or principles of how the model behaves so with this approach the constitution of an ai model consists of a set of principles that guide its output so in claude's case anthropic has encouraged the model to avoid toxic or discriminatory outputs refrain from assisting in illegal or unethical activities and aim to be helpful, honest, and harmless. And so Anthropic says that this constitution is a living document. And they actually drew it up using various sources, including the UN Declaration for Human Rights, some trust and safety best practices, and some principles proposed by other AI research labs. They also mentioned that it includes principles to reflect non-Western perspectives and values identified through trial and error. So they say, look, this is basically a V1. It can be revised and improved based on further research and feedback. So you're essentially giving a model, a set of guidelines the company infuses into it from the start as to how it should, should and should not behave versus allowing that behavior to be dictated by human feedback. So first off, I guess, Paula, can you outline how big a problem is this that they're trying to solve? It seems like we often get harmful, toxic, or negative results produced by some large language models pretty often.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one of the the largest challenges that genitive AI is dealing with is how, how to do this. And we've talked about this on the show before about open AI. You know, it when GPT-3, GPT-4 come out, there's pushback from one, you know, again, we'll think about political sides in the United States because we have to live with it all the time. So you have one side saying, oh, it's too woke. It's, you know, this and that. And then the other side, you know, has their own issues with it. And so then OpenAI basically says, listen, eventually you're just going to able to tune this thing however you want. And you're going to be able to have your version of it and you can kind of adjust, you know, how it responds. But we're going to stop putting the guardrails in ourselves as much. They're going to put their own in for universally accepted things. But when it comes to anything related to politics or what some may consider facts, um, it's kind of like going to let you have your own run at how it outputs basically and so it it's a really messy problem to try and control what it it says and how it positions people and places and countries and hmm. economic beliefs and religious beliefs like all of these really messy issues that a lot of times as humans we just avoid talking to each other about because we don't want to like cross some line Well, these things can't do that. You're going to ask them these questions, uh, either because you're trying to figure these things out or you're just trying to challenge the system, but you're going to push it to give you answers. And as these things get better and better and more accurate, people are going to come to rely on them as fact and truth. And so, what is truth? What is fact becomes really, really important. And again, as a society, we have a really hard time deciding what truth and fact is right now. Mm -hmm. And so, how do you tune a model? To give you truth when we can't agree on what it is and so that's the problem they're having and so this is a really novel approach and it's you know something i've been kind of watching for the last few months is how they're doing this now as a reminder anthropic isn't some small player here they've raised 1.3 billion their series c deck that was talked about in crunch base this one this was just april 6th and i think we talked about this on the show so the pitch deck for their series C fundraising discloses that they're looking for as much as 5 billion over the next two years to take on OpenAI and others, and that they're uh, building what they're calling a frontier model called Claude Next, which is 10 times more capable than today's most powerful AI, but that will require a billion dollars in spending over the next 18 months to do it. So, and they're founded by former open AI researchers. Um, So they're a major, major player in this space. And I just think it's really worth noting how they're doing this. There's a research paper on kind of the details of how this works. And they just published, which we'll put in the show notes, kind of how the Constitutional AI works because they've been kind of guarded about what exactly it's trained on and how it works. So, yeah, I think it's a really novel approach and worth paying attention to. And. At the White House meeting we talked about an episode or two ago, um, the, the CEO of Anthropic was one of the people at that table with Microsoft, Google, and OpenAI. So again, they're a major company worth paying attention to in this space.
1: Yeah, so do you anticipate other companies kind of developing their own constitutions for language models? I mean, how would that, how will this impact how companies use the models or the outputs they're getting from them?
0: I could definitely see that. I mean, I think what's going to happen is, you know, again we touched on open versus closed models, and are you just going to go get an, uh, you know, out of the box uh, model from OpenAI or somebody or are you going to actually like train these things on your own? And in most cases corporations are going to uh, infuse not only their brand guidelines and their own knowledge base, but I could imagine, you know, where you could have your own constitutional AI approach to it where you're training it on your morals and beliefs and the things you want it to be able to do and say so yeah i think this is again just kind of a developing area and something to pay attention to and then the other thing i think we touched on is um they recently put out an update where you could uh pre-prompt this thing with a hundred thousand tokens um so again tokens are kind of how these work but that's equivalent of seventy-five thousand words roughly so uh, you know, basically a thousand tokens is 750 words and just keep scaling up. So what that means is like when you're using these models, you can actually put 75,000 words of, into your prompt. So you could take like our book, the marketing artificial intelligence book is 60,000 words. Hmm. We could actually give it the manuscript and then like have a conversation with it about that book. Like you can take all of that in. That is, that is a massive leap. And I think just kind of, a again, an idea of where this is going with being able to, um, you know, do some pretty incredible stuff where you can actually extract uh, knowledge from all of the content you have, all the show content, all the written content. Um, It's just incredible stuff.
1: Yeah, that's a super exciting use case and kind of marketing and business, getting a much faster time to knowledge with the books and the resources you engage with. So our third main topic today is about a recent Brookings Institution article, and it is titled Machines of Mind, the Case for an AI-Powered Productivity. The authors of this explore the potential impact of AI, especially large language models on the economy and on knowledge workers. And notably, one of the authors of this article is Eric Brynjolfsson, who wrote a really formative book we read in the early days called The Second Machine Age, and it's about AI's impact on labor and the workforce. So the in the article insights, they pull out a few really interesting takeaways that add some kind of nuance and context, I think, to the AI impact on employment conversation. So first off, they predict that large language models will literally impact millions of knowledge workers in the next few years, ranging from doctors and lawyers to managers and salespeople. And these groups will all experience similar groundbreaking shifts in their productivity within a few years, if not sooner. They also say that the productivity gains from AI will be realized directly through output created per hour worked, in other words, increased efficiency, and also indirectly through accelerated innovation that drives future productivity growth. And the authors of this paper, this article, actually broadly agree with a recent Goldman Sachs estimate that AI could raise global GDP by a whopping 7%, which is a crazy number when it comes to GDP. They also note that the rate of change from generative AI will be unlike any technological advancement we've seen before, which makes it very hard to forecast as they admit you know, what happens next. What I found interesting about this, Paul, was that there's a really vigorous debate over whether or not AI will take away jobs or create more of them. And this certainly seems to be leaning towards AI being a long-term net positive for employment and productivity. Was that kind of what you took away from it?
0: That was certainly how they tried to spin it. Um, I actually looked at this and thought they tried really hard to convince themselves that it wasn't going to be massively disruptive in the next couple of years, but all their data seems to imply the opposite, that that it's going to be really painful. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, like I shared this on LinkedIn and I I put kind of the synopsis you just went through that that they address the fact that it's going to have a massive impact on knowledge work. they talk about, you know, the 49% of the workforce could eventually have half or more of their job tasks performed by AI. There's going to be massive productivity gains through direct output, you know, Uh, created per hour and indirectly through innovation. Um, But then it it becomes very apparent that they actually have no idea how to predict this, like how to model this. And so that was the part that really struck me was that they they were sort of, it felt like they were kind of grasping at straws for how to project out the impact this was going to have because economists really like to look to the past for answers. And so you look at past general purpose technologies like electricity and you say, okay, what happened when these general purpose technologies came into, the, came into the world? And so they talk about diffusion of this stuff. So kind of the law of uneven you know, distribution, like we talked about a little bit, but the diffusion of this stuff can t- take decades in some cases till it has the impact. And by that time, you can have a net positive in job creation. But they very specifically say like, they, this is going to happen way faster than any of that. So as an economist, if you're looking at past models to try and predict the impact on knowledge work. There aren't really models that parallel what what is about to happen. And just to give you a sense of how I I feel like they were trying to put a positive light on this and trying to kind of like get, get, get some recent reasonable projections, but I almost felt like every time they did it, they talked themselves back into like, okay, we might not be ready for this. So let me just Mm -hmm. give you an example. Like, and this is a little bit kind of technical from a math perspective, but anyway, it shows you how they're just kind of making up numbers right now. So They talk about, um, okay. So they go through the Goldman Sachs, as you mentioned, the 7% GDP, which is a staggering number. I mean, it is a massive number. GDP is like what? 22 trillion or something like that. I don't know what it is, but it's massive. So 7% is huge. And then based on their analysis, they kind of agree with them. So then they talk about the first channel is increased efficiency of output production by making cognitive workers more productive, more efficient. The level of output increases, which improves the economy. Um, Economic theory tells us, so again, we're looking at economic theory here, we're looking backwards, um, tells us that in competitive markets, the effect of a productivity boost in a given sector on aggregate productivity and output is equal to the size of productivity boost multiplied by the size of the sector. So basically, the bigger the sector, the bigger the boost, the bigger the productivity gain. So then it goes on, though, and talks about the second and ultimately more important channel is the acceleration of innovation and thus future productivity growth. So this is the one where it starts getting real. Like this is the real important part because this is the part that determines the impact, but it becomes very apparent that they're not sure how to model this. So, um, okay, cognitive workers not only produce current output, but also invent new things, engage in discoveries and generate the technological progress that boosts future activity. This includes R&D, what scientists do, and perhaps more importantly, the process of rolling out new innovations into production activities through the economy, throughout the economy, what managers do. So this is the part where it starts like they're just putting throwing some numbers in there. If cognitive workers are more efficient, they will accelerate technological progress and thereby boost the rate of productivity growth in perpetuity. For example, if productivity growth was 2% and the cognitive labor. That underpins productivity growth is 20% more productive. This would raise the growth rate of productivity by 20% to 2.4% in a given year. Such a change is barely noticeable. It is usually swamped by cyclical fluctuations. So basically, like you wouldn't even notice a 20% gain overall, macro level. But productivity growth compounds. After a decade, the described tiny increase in productivity growth would leave the economy 5% larger. And the growth would compound further every year thereafter. What's more, if the acceleration applied to the growth rate of the, of the growth rate, <laughs> applied to the growth rate of the growth rate, for instance, if one of the applications of the AI was to improve AI itself, then of course, growth would accelerate even more over time. Hmm. So basically they're just like, we have no idea, but every report we're currently looking at, whether it's Goldman Sachs or some of the others ones they cite, seems to imply we are heading down a path we've never been down before in terms of productivity gains. Mm. Now that can be great because the US economy in particular is in massive debt. We're in the process right now of trying not to default on our debt. Um, And so the way out of that is to increase productivity. So that seems like a positive thing. Um, But the question just becomes what impact does it have on the people doing the work and how important are those people to future models? And so, again, it just goes back to a few episodes ago when we talked about we could be looking at millions of jobs in the next 18 to 24 months that are impacted. Well, certainly impacted. That's undebatable. Mm. How many are lost is the the real question. And my thesis was like, I think there's a greater than 50% probability that we lose millions of jobs in the next two years. I think it may gain over time and you can go back and kind of listen to that episode and we'll put the show notes, the link to it, but. Uh, you know, I think that this article just hit for me because these are really well-known economists that are not sure what to make of this is kind of how I took it. And I did feel like they were trying to put a positive, like optimistic spin on it. Um, but I read the article twice, like the, their data doesn't seem to support the optimistic perspective is kind of how I took it.
1: Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: I, I, I wanted to be more positive, but that's, that's just. I don't
1: know. Yeah, it it is interesting. You get, like you mentioned, these quotes throughout the article that shows this tension, because after some very positive stat or outcome, they'll say things like, quote, instead of the lowest paid workers bearing the brunt of the disruption, now many of the highest paying occupations will be affected. These workers may find the disruption to be quite unexpected. So then you get statements like that and you're like, oh, wait, this could be a little rockier than they're Describing.
0: And you can just read. I mean, even honestly, like if you just go in and read the italicized part at the top, they do a pretty good, like 75 to 100 word synopsis of the whole thing. Hmm. And then, like I said, on LinkedIn, I kind of called out the three main things with a few quotes. But Hmm. again, my my overall thing is here is don't, this isn't a doomsayer kind of thing. Like nobody knows. The economists don't know. And so it goes back to what we've always said is like the best thing you can do right now is embrace this stuff. Figure it out, figure out what it means to you, find ways to start applying it every day, bring value to your organization, help others figure this stuff out and you're, you'll be fine. Like that, but if you don't do that, I can't, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, that's all we keep saying is like, just take the next steps, learn this stuff, figure it out, find ways to improve your own career with it. And like, just stay focused on that. Don't let all this other stuff kind of bother you, but you have to know this other stuff's going on at a macro level. And that a lot of really really smart people are trying to figure this out, and no one seems to have the answers yet.
1: The really good takeaway. We have a ton of rapid fire. I'm topics, just going to sit back and let you. So I'm going I'm I'm to move fast here. <laughs> and each of these probably could be a main topic on its own. First up, uh, a 23 year old influencer named Karen Marjorie with 1.8 million Snapchat followers introduced Karen AI, a voice based chat bot of her that is billed as a virtual girlfriend. So she used AI to create a clone of her voice and her personality or persona from thousands of hours of her own recordings. And so this actually debuted on an app called Telegram earlier in May, and it enables individual chats with users, and they pay $1 per minute to engage in, quote, intimate conversations. Despite being in beta testing for just a week, Karen AI has already generated over $70,000 in revenue for this influencer. This just seemed like a weird and wild story of what's now possible with this technology. What did you think?
0: I thought I have an 11-year-old daughter, and I I just don't know
1: where where
0: the future is going. Um, I I had a lot of thoughts when I saw this, but i I probably not a place to get into this. Um, it's kind of like the 900 numbers of like the 1980s. I think I saw a meme about that. Like, it's just like the dial, dial a minute and mm-hmm. you know, pay by the minute kind of thing. Um, I'm going to get out of the um, how why people are paying this realm and like go into the um, kind of the business side of this, I guess. Imagine you're able to do this as a strategist or mm-hmm. as a celebrity or, you know, as a business leader. Um, so. If your purpose for creating it is actually to assist people and to help them, and you can train it on your knowledge base. So again, like think about that example we said about just assume every blog post you've ever written, every book you've written, every podcast you've done, every piece of knowledge you've ever created or your company has ever created. Imagine that a language model is trained on that. And then imagine you're able to create a synthetic version of yourself, like a digital version that kind of looks like you, but it's, you know, has voice like you and and you could actually sell a subscription service to that. That's the kind of business opportunities we're heading into. And so again, if you're a celebrity, you know, think about these, what's that, I can't remember that company where you could like pay money and a celebrity would show up on a yeah, Zoom call or cameo, something. Yeah, yeah. like imagine you could do that, except you could be in a hundred places a day. Hmm. So a Cameo AI version, there you go, Cameo, if you don't have that in your roadmap, <laughs> like, you're welcome. But that's what we're talking about here. I saw something... Last night was Justine Bateman, I think. Was she... I forget what she was on. It was like a 1980s actress, um, I think. Um, but she was talking about this Writers Guild strike mm. and how they're already doing this. Like, they're creating synthetic versions of actors. And so you'll be able to basically license away your yourself, your digital being. And so you could be recording, like, four movies at once. Like, wow. just basically... And so I just, I think this is just a really interesting example when you extrapolate out of the, um, you know, people paying a dollar an hour for intimate conversations. And we talk about the business side, there's, there's a ton of use cases and implications for business. Um, This is just maybe like a early foray into it.
1: Wow. Next up, we got some big news from OpenAI. They are now rolling out their web browsing and ChatGPT plugins to all ChatGPT Plus users over the next week. So basically, if you have ChatGPT Plus very soon, if you haven't already, you will be able to use the browser plugin that allows you to access the internet. And there will also be 70 plus third party plugins that they've already announced that have been available to certain users will now be accessible by everybody. This seems like a big announcement, especially on the heels of Google and Microsoft with their big announcements.
0: Yeah. So quick notes here. So I've had the browsing plugin for a few weeks. It, it it does. It's interesting. It works pretty well. Um, I've got the code interpreter plugin and that's it. I don't have the rest of them. So I have seen some people online who have gotten access to these. Uh, So you can look online if you want to learn more about it, but i was a pretty early waitlist person I, I don't have them yet um could be turned on at any time the thing i will say though that i have noticed is um a lot of people who have tested them are like yeah it's really interesting they don't work like a lot of them just do not work so don't assume like this is going to get turned out in the world I mean, it's just changed and nothing's ever going to be the same again there's a good chance you're going to go in there and play with them and, like these kind of suck I'm like i don't, don't want to use this or i don't want to connect my data to this one and that that's expected. I mean, it's an emerging ecosystem. There's gonna be junk in there. There's gonna be some that you find that are super useful. So if you got time to play around with them and explore, awesome. Um, but it, it, it's not, we talked before, like the plugins are a huge deal. Don't expect life-changing uh, things to happen from this first run of them once they're turned on in your portal.
1: So next- Oh, up- and you
0: do have to, real quick, you do have to go into your settings and turn on beta user. So if you d- if you don't have it turned on already, go into your settings in the bottom left in the in, in the ChatGPT interface, and then click on I think it's beta, um, and then make sure that you're toggled on. So that'll at least give you once they do roll them out the chance to get them.
1: Gotcha. That's an important note because I can imagine people like myself just sitting here excited, waiting, to waiting, it waiting. <laughs> right. So, next up another interesting kind of company brand use case for AI. Wendy's, the fast food chain, is actually starting to test an AI-powered chatbot next month in June, and they will begin to talk to customers and take drive-through orders with AI. So, this is a system powered by Google Cloud's AI software. So, they're building on top of like Palm 2 and the, some of the technologies that we just discussed. And Basically, they will allow a system to understand speech, answer questions, and fill your order. Um, and I think a fun fact as well I think the first one is in Columbus, Ohio. So, relatively close to us here in Cleveland. What yeah. did you think of this development, Paul?
0: Yeah, it's, um, I think we're just going to see tons of these. I mean, I, I think behind the scenes right now, every major organization enterprise is having these kind of conversations about ways to infuse this and i think throughout 2023 we're just going to see tons of interesting use cases so again kind of a sign of things to come
1: yeah and definitely probably adoption being driven by fast food especially being having chronic labor shortages it sounds like these days yeah and i think
0: that's an important point mike is we talk about the loss of knowledge work jobs potentially Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of industries that are having massive labor shortages so in some cases ai replacing uh, or significantly automating jobs is is going to be a really good thing especially for small business owners who are struggling um you know to find workers and it's everywhere still so yeah i mean again like you're always looking for the positives here and these are ones where it, it could be a positive
1: So another big AI announcement from Meta, they announced that they are, they have built and are open sourcing something called ImageBind, which is the first AI model capable of binding information from six modalities. Now, what that means is that the model can learn, you know, not just from text, image and video and audio, but also from sensors that record depth. So like 3D thermal sensors, so infrared radiation and uh inertial measurement units so basically motion and position so what this means is we now have an ai model from meta that will be usable by anyone from an open source perspective that gives the, equips machines with a holistic understanding of how of connecting objects in a photo understanding how they will sound their 3d shape how warm or cold they are and how they move which opens up an exponential amount more of possibilities for building on top of such a model.
0: Going to be bonkers. (laughs) Like I, I, again, I I mean, I think so many people are new to AI are just blown away by the language generation capability. And it's really hard to imagine a world in, you know, one, two, three years where all of these models are multimodal, where they all learn from an output images videos sound like it it's gonna get so crazy and a paper like this like we've said before like these research papers and these releases from companies like meta if you dig into them and you start connecting the dots of where it could go it gets really really crazy and so i just i think we're gonna see in 2023 we're probably gonna hear a lot about multimodality. we're gonna see you know, GPT four, whatever version of GPT four, GPT it is, that's going to have image capabilities and eventually video capabilities, and it's probably going to happen in in pieces. Uh, it won't be like you just flip a switch and it's all multimodal, but that's certainly where Google's going. Um, Google probably has a head start there. If you think about all the data Google has, they have YouTube, they have Google Search with all those images. Like again, advantages Google has training data I didn't list in my original, but I got more of it than anybody. And uh, yeah, this, I don't know, this is fascinating stuff. I haven't read this paper yet, but um, Meta believes, Jan LeCun believes that like a worldview is very important to to general intelligence, that mm-hmm. the the AI has to be able to observe like a toddler would. So the way that you think about a toddler, how they learn, um, it's not all coded into them. They actually just observe the world around them and they they learn things that way. And so that's, I think, part of Jan LeCun's belief is that language models on their own aren't enough we we actually have to be able to kind of observe the world and so this sort of innovation is actually a precursor to the ability for these ai agents to observe and learn from things happening around them which i think they believe is a a better path
1: to agi wow so next step uh A leading generative AI platform, our friends at writer, writer writer.com just announced some big new features, and you can read all about them in the show notes, but some big ones are there's a knowledge graph now in this platform that connects all your important data sources, so you can actually fact check and ask questions in real time. There is a self-hosted large language model, so you can update, configure, operate, and update your own model without relying on third-party services. There's a cool service in the platform now where you can upload anything, including PDFs, Docs, PowerPoints, et cetera, and actually query the content, kind of like we discussed a bit with Anthropic, and actually generate content based on those documents. Uh, There's a Writer Mac app now, and then there are commands in the Writer web app that actually make it much easier to research, create, and edit without having to go through a bunch of different tabs. So, you know, Paul, we've kept tabs on and have a good relationship with Writer uh, over the last several years, um, and they're kind of you know an enterprise grade platform built for teams. So, what did you think of seeing these feature updates?
0: Yeah, it was, they're super cool. I mean, they do a lot of smart stuff. They're good people. May um, Habib was one of our speakers at our AI for Writers Summit. Um, she'll actually be at Maycon as well. So, yeah, I mean, just just continually doing cool stuff. Um, the the PDF one is interesting. I, I think I've seen that a lot lately. Like that's one of the use cases I've been waiting for. Is yeah. Like these research papers that we talk about that we read, some of these things are really dense, like 40, 50 pages. And so the ability to take a research paper, take a segment of that research paper and just feed it to it and say, here, what does it summarize this for me? Pull out the key data points. Um, So I think just some of these more common use cases are going to start to be made really simple within these platforms. And so, you know, Writer again, if you're an enterprise looking for to figure out your strategy for large language models and generative AI, certainly one of the companies to keep an eye on and have a conversation with. That's awesome.
1: So another big update is we've talked quite a bit about the European Union's Artificial Intelligence Act. So this is pending standards for AI um, in the EU, and they actually just agreed on some text for that act. And there's, you know, we'll link to the full updates here because they're quite extensive but a couple big ones and you know someone on twitter put it really well think of this as broadly gdpr for artificial intelligence now as part of these regulations two that really jumped out at me the builders of foundational models are going to have to disclose details about how the models were trained so you know the open ais the google's the anthropic's of the world will actually have to be will be forced to show how they are training their models to the EU in order to be in compliance with this act. Also, foundation models will have to clarify the copyright status of the data they use to train the model, which is a huge issue right now in Europe and across the globe. Those seem alone like two pretty big updates, Paul.
0: Yeah, I know this isn't law yet, but you know, the compromise, this is part of the barriers. Uh, those are very interesting, notable items. I, I would be fascinated to see how that plays out because <laughs> as we've talked about, like, you know, GPT four in particular, like we, we have no idea what it was trained on. Like you can guess. And I mean, there's been some research projects trying to figure it out. Um, uh, but part of the reason some people think they didn't disclose it is because they, they stole stuff. They, they mm. took copyrighted stuff that they maybe didn't have the rights to. Um, and that's in the the training set. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it'd it'd be interesting, but you know, there's a reasonable assumption that they're all training on similar data that they maybe shouldn't be training on. So at the end of the day, I I don't know. I I, I just, I don't know like it's going to have a major impact, but it'll certainly make for some interesting headlines when all this finally comes out.
1: Hmm. So another big announcement with Partnerships in AI. Um, Jasper, you know, a generative AI platform, one of the leading ones we're very familiar with. They actually just announced a new partnership with Google Cloud that will actually enhance Jasper's AI engine and make it more accessible to millions by being listed in the Google Cloud marketplace. Um, this seems like a pretty big deal. We've seen multiple big AI companies, third-party startups, you know, partnering with some of the bigger platforms. What did you take away from this?
0: Yeah. I, the night before Google I.O. conference, so that was, was it last Tuesday, they announced a series of partnerships. Jasper is one of them, Box was another. Mm. Um, I mean, if anything, it shows that these application layer companies aren't relying on single cloud providers. So, you know, they're building out a bunch of APIs. So they're pulling in, you know, GPT-4, they're pulling in, you know, Palm 2. Like, basically, if you're a pl- uh, an application layer, you you can't just build on one language model. You're going to have to have a collection of them. And it seems like what they're all doing is basically saying, hey, you as the end user, the VP of marketing, the CMO, whatever, don't worry about picking the right language model. We have five of them or whatever it is. Based on your use case, our system will determine which model to pull from and So I think that that's part of their play is to take some of the confusion out of the marketplace and be Mm -hmm. the one that does all the infrastructure so that the end user doesn't have to worry about going right to open AI and picking them and then realizing oh that was a bad choice. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to sort of have a diverse set of models to access, I think that's what it seems like the play is. Um, So, yeah, it's just Google's making their play and getting in the space.
1: All right. Last but not least, we have another friends at IBM, (laughs) our old friends at IBM are back in the game here at their annual think conference. IBM announced IBM Watson X, which is a new platform that delivers tools to build AI models and give access to pre-trained models in the generative AI space So basically help customers better and easier use artificial intelligence in their operations. Now, you know, IBM Watson was one of the kind of foundational AI systems we wrote about in the book. You know, they were on Jeopardy. IBM has been somewhat quiet in the last few years, it seems like, in the AI race. What did you think about them being back in the mix?
0: Yeah, I I mean, it's good to see. I think they they made a massive bet for years on Watson in healthcare, and I don't know that it played out the way it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, our origin is from watson like i've told the story before but you know watson winning on jeopardy in 2011 is actually what piqued my curiosity about what ai was which led me to spend years trying to understand it which led us to create the marketing AI institute eventually and help other people understand it so you know, I have a special place in my heart for ibm and watson and um I, you know i i i think it'd be really interesting if ibm showed back up i mean they've thousands of ai patents they've yeah. they've been at this again for 20 plus years. We don't really talk about IBM because they don't have, you know, it's not a massive play in, in the marketing space that we look at. And they don't have a bunch of tools that are readily accessible. Um, but maybe they're going to move in that direction. It'd be really interesting if IBM showed up and wanted a seat at the table. So I don't know. It could be fun. So I'm kind of cheering for them. But I haven't like dove into Watson X yet and seen what it's all about. But it's cool to see that they're part of the conversation again.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, don't count anyone out in the AI race.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're never, like I'm listing, like literally I'm listing all these people. I never list IBM anymore. So (laughs) maybe I'll have to start throwing IBM in the mix again.
1: Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you as always for the time and insight to kind of unpack what's going on in AI. As I'm sure listeners can tell, there's way too much going on all the time. So thank you for clarifying it for us and demystifying it.
0: Yeah. Good to have you back. And oh, by the way, happy belated Mother's Day to all the moms out there, our our three, uh, Tracy, Tamara, and Kathy at the Institute. Um, you know, we just, uh, and my, you know, our own moms, but um, just a couple of days past that, but I wanted to make sure we recognized all the amazing moms out there, especially those working moms who, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. So um, thank you to everyone. Thanks to all our listeners. And we'll be back next week.